morning, beloved. It's good to be together to worship our King. Uh, if you will, turn to John chapter 2 with me in your copy of Scripture. John chapter 2. I have to do something every year as a pastor. Um, they, they have this wonderful thing called a, a minister's tax housing allowance, and it's supposed to be this wonderful thing that makes me not have to pay as many taxes. It doesn't, by the way, um, because you get taxed at like the rate of a business owner, and yet you don't get to claim any of the expenses. It's just insane. But what that means is every year, there's a moment where I have to sit down and actually calculate how much did all the things cost me, my utilities and stuff, and man, like, if you don't believe just reading the headlines of, like, the cost of things going up, go through and look at your electric bill year over year and things like that. Like, every bit of it has just gone up so much. So I'm really cheap. I'm sorry. That's just who I am. I'm a cheap person. Um, so I'm always looking for ways to save money. And um, auto insurance also has gone outrageous. No amens? I heard it. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Man, it was wild. Like every six months, they wanted like another $100 over what it was prior to that. I'm like, this is just outrageous. So I'm shopping around and each insurance company that I talk to, um, they would be like, this is our best rate. Um, but here's the thing. If you go with us, we're going to send you this beacon that you're going to put in your vehicle and it's going to pair with your phone and it's going to track you and assess your driving habits. And you can save so much money if you do this. And so finally, I get like, this is the lowest quote. I'm going to go with this company. And they're like, you can save more money by putting this beacon in your vehicle. And I was like, I really don't want to do that. Like, it just sounds like a terrible idea. I'm like, I've been driving for 20 years and I've never had an at-fault accident. Like, I'm a good driver, but what if this thing thinks that I'm not a good driver? And the lady's like on the phone, she's like, well, it can't hurt you. It can only help you. So largely, it's just going to see that you don't drive many miles because if you don't know, I ride a scooter. Proud of that. I've overcome. Um, so I'm telling her all about my scooter. And like, I try not to put many miles on the truck. That thing eats gas like nothing. So anyways, I'm convinced. Put the beacon in my truck. It's not supposed to hurt me. It's only supposed to help and save money. This assurance has been given to me. And would you know, after about a month of driving my truck, I hate driving it more than ever. Do you know Why? Because it's constantly this test. It's this test, and anything less than a perfect score on a test feels like failure to me. I hate it. Like, I despise it. Like, I want to rip it off the dash and smash it with a hammer and gladly send them the money of whatever it costs. Like, I despise this thing, and I can't help it. Like, every time that I finish driving, I pull out my phone and look at my score. Like... And the silly thing will count off things like it's like if you're cornering too hard, if you're braking too hard, if you're accelerating too hard, if you speed and like, it's just absurd. Like the hill takes my truck faster than the speed limit, I swear. Like it's so frustrating. I cannot stand it. It drives me nuts. By the way, I'm at a 96 right now. <laughs> I'm at a 96 and it still bothers me. Like I want to fight it every time it says... It's, it's ridiculous. Um, but you know what the truth is behind that? Exposure of our faults and failures hurt. It hurts. It hurts to be exposed when we fail, when we don't live up to something. Um, when, when our brokenness is on display, it hurts. And we want to avoid hurt. We don't like pain. And so we try to avoid that. We want to put on a mask. We want to put on a front that everything is fine. And when some kind of an assessment formally comes in and says, hey, look at this, you're not as awesome as you think. Ugh, it's hurtful. 
It's painful. I don't like that experience. And so with that in our minds, listen to this. The end of John chapter 2, verse 23. Read with me. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what is in man. Wow. That's pretty harsh. That's a hard assessment for us to accept. It makes me want to pick up the phone and call the company and say, you got something wrong. Is that true? Jesus knows what is in man. This actually sets the stage for us for what is famously going to follow as we move now into chapter three. That Jesus knows what is in man. Setting the stage for a famous encounter, John is making a contrast here. Many believe in, meaning they trust. So they trust in Jesus because of the signs, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Do you see the irony that's pointed out here? That because of the signs, and we covered last week this wedding at Cana, when Jesus turns this water into wine, and it's in just crazy abundance, making it clear he is the Messiah, he is salvation, he is God himself come to us to save us. And there's more than we could ever dream of. He's doing these signs, and yet now it says all these people see the signs, and in some way they believe they trust in Jesus because they see the signs, but Jesus knows them, and he does not entrust himself to them because he knows what is in man. That's a hard assessment to accept. Why does Jesus know what is in man? What is in man? What is core to who we are? Is one, we have to start with the beginning that God created us and he created us good. He made us male and female in his image and he said it is good. It was not good for man to be alone, but when it was man and woman, woman coming from man, together we have the image of God on us. Made good. And to start our theology beyond that with just the brokenness that we experience and all that is to fail abysmally. We have to start with God is good and he made us good. We are made in the image of God. So what is core to who we are? We are made in the image of God. And yet what is also true is that we have marred that. We have broken that. We rebelled against God, all of us, every single one of us, but federally in Adam and Eve, we fell There was the fall, this curse was brought upon us because of our sin, our rebellion, that we disobeyed God. And now you and I know that every single day of our lives, we still do the same thing. Just like the serpent deceived Eve and the argument that convinced us, you will be like God. And now we still every day in so many ways want to put ourselves back on the throne where only God should be. That I'll decide what is right and wrong. I'll eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil instead of just trusting you, God. Or I'll live for my glory. I'll do all these things. I'll put all these things in the place of God. They're called idols. And so we know that we are broken. We are cursed. We are fallen in sin. The image of God has been fractured in us. And the language of scripture is that in this sin, we're actually enslaved to it. That we often don't even realize it's blinding. That's other language put into it. That we don't even know, but we're actually trapped and we're stuck in it. We're slaves to sin. We're depraved. It's called depravity. And we have this inability to save ourselves. So when Jesus says he's not going to entrust himself to man because he knows what is in man, what he knows is in man is, yes, you were made in the image of God. Remember in John's theology, he's already started from the very beginning saying he's the creator. 
He created you. He knows you better than anyone because he made you. But he's also the one that you rebelled against. And so he knows that you were made good. You were made in the image of God. And he knows that you broke that, that you were sinful. And so here's Jesus performing signs to show you who he is. And as people would trust because they see the sign, Jesus would not entrust himself to them. So let's keep going. Look at chapter three now, verse one. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. So here it is, this famous encounter. Nicodemus is a Pharisee who shows up, but catch the language here that John is intentionally using. He's tying this this start of chapter three. The, The chapter divisions are not inspired by God, and so often they can like make a mental change in our minds that should not happen. This is one of them, I'm convinced. Chapter two's ending is tied directly to chapter three's beginning. Hear the language repeating here. Here's a man, when Jesus did not entrust himself to man because he knows what is in man, and now here is a man. Why would he use that language? There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Here's a man who in some way sees and believes because of the signs. And so again, all this language being repeated from how he closed out chapter two, So we're supposed to draw these two together. Now here's a man who sees and believes in some way about Jesus because he saw the signs. And this is a Pharisee. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. If you don't know what a Pharisee is, a Pharisee, uh, the name literally means separatist. One who's obsessed with being separate, which is the idea of holiness. Holy means set apart, to be other. And so the Pharisees were obsessed with being separated, to be set apart, to be holy. And so they're religious fanatics. They have so much zeal, and I'm not meaning all this in a negative way. Some of it is beautiful. They really desire holiness. And yet that desire for holiness is largely driven by what is visible. That they took a lot of pride in being different. They wanted people to look up to them as you're a really good rule follower. And so they had really, really strict adherence to the law, and then all these rules that they tacked on top of the law. They would study these things like crazy and just be so committed to making sure they had the appearance of what people would see as holiness. They're very concerned about their appearance. What others see matters. So again, you hear the language. Here's a Pharisee who's a man who cares about appearance. He has seen something of Jesus and the sign that Jesus is doing, and signs are all about seeing. He believes in some way. Jesus does not entrust those who see yet. And now here comes this man who's obsessed with what things look like. And he comes at night. And we don't know exactly why, but John clearly included that detail for a reason. And so some ideas of why would it say that he came to Jesus at night, perhaps he was too busy with his duties in the daytime. And this would be a very important man, a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, would probably have a pretty busy schedule. So maybe he comes at night because this is just the only time he has. That's a possibility. Maybe it's because he wants to save face in the public eye. Because he cares so much about appearance. And here's this rabbi doing crazy cool things. But we don't quite know about him. And he's not one of us. So he might be a threat. Because if I care about my appearance and then someone else is kind of taking the eyes off of me and putting them elsewhere, that's a threat. So it's possible that he's doing this at nighttime because he doesn't want the public seeing him and associating him with Jesus. Or another possibility, as John, with his lofty theology, starts his book, the prologue, with 
creating this contrast of Jesus as the light who comes into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome or comprehend it. Perhaps he's trying to draw us into that to see the contrast of Jesus as the light of the world now being approached by a man in darkness. Whatever the case, I think we can take a lot from each of those ideas, but we don't know for sure. But this is the setting, that it is nighttime, a Pharisee, someone who cares so much about appearance and being holy, keeping the rules, has approached Jesus and is kind of sweet-talking him. Rabbi, we know you've been sent from God. We know God must be with you because you do these signs. Like, man, he's sweet-talking him. He comes to Jesus, and this is great flattery. We don't know if, if that's, like, what, what's his motive in it. Maybe he's genuine, maybe he's authentic, or maybe he's not. This is actually just very normal. If you look at ancient literature, um, when you came to anyone who anybody respected, it was very normal to start your conversation with trying to say something kind about them, trying to build them up, even if you're about to say something pretty awful. Read the book of Acts. But it's, it's lots of fun. So here we go. Now look at the conversation. Nicodemus has come to Jesus, and he's called him rabbi, said these things like the signs, he's referenced all that, and now look at Jesus' response right off the bat in verse 3. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Whoa! (laughs) Like, where does that come from? You imagine being there, watching this play out. Highly respected man, ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee. We look to him because he's really good at keeping the rules. He's really holy. Like, we want our kids to be like that. This guy's got it figured out. He's really good at this game. Here comes respected man, and the cover of darkness, he approaches Jesus. He talks only kindly to Jesus, says really good things to Jesus. And Jesus' quick response, not even answering a question that he said, but Jesus just all of a sudden out of nowhere says, what? Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Again, look at the language. What does Jesus say? Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You person who is so obsessed with what you look like and you think you believe because you have seen these signs, so you believe something about me. Well, let me, let me tell you something. You, you won't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This on the heels of Nicodemus saying that God must be with him to perform the signs that he has seen. So remember again, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's obsessed with religious piety that can be seen. We have the advantage because reading through this book, we go back to chapter one in the prologue. This idea of being born again has already been introduced to us. Chapter one, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And so we know this idea of being born again, that this is something that God has done. Those who receive him, they are born again. He gives them the right to be children of God. They believe in his name and were born not of natural descent or the will of flesh, but not of the will of man, but of God's will. And so we have this idea in our mind, but Nicodemus, however, did not know what Jesus meant when all of a sudden pleasantries are over and Jesus is like, hey, hey, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. You'll never see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Like, wow. Like Jesus can be offensive. He cuts right to it. And sidebar, let's just camp here for a second. Did you know that the gospel is offensive? Yes, thank you. <laughs> it is deeply offensive. Grace, 
We love and we celebrate grace, but grace is painful because the very nature of grace is you don't deserve it. And so to receive this grace, to enjoy this grace, to stand in grace, as Paul said in Romans 5, means to first acknowledge you don't deserve to be here, that you have fallen. Jesus knows what is in man. He must be born again, not of the will of the flesh, not the will of man, but of God, or you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. So we come to this point Nicodemus, not understanding, as Jesus says, you must be born again. You care about what things look like? You believe in something, but do you believe in the right thing? So let's keep going. Look at verse four. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Like real confusion. Read that with real confusion. I didn't do a good job there. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Let's just admit that's gross. The answer is no. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So what does Jesus mean about being born of water in the spirit as he gives this explanation? Nicodemus, of course, is confused. (laughs) Whoa, out of nowhere, Jesus tells me I've got to be born again or I'm never going to see the kingdom of God. What does that mean, Jesus? And Jesus gives this explanation that, well, you, you need to be born of water and the spirit. To be born again is to be born of water and the spirit or you never enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. And he tells them, don't be amazed. This shouldn't catch you off guard. This shouldn't create confusion for you. You see the wind, it blows where it pleases. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going, but you're not amazed at that. So it is with the spirit of God. He goes where he desires. This is most likely an allusion to a prophecy given of the new covenant Um, through the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, 25 to 27. Listen to this prophecy. God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, I, I mean God, will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. The new covenant, and Jeremiah has the same type of language as he speaks of this new covenant. And we know from the gospels, particularly as Jesus sits at the last supper and references the cup of blessing, alludes back to this, and then the preacher in the book of Hebrews explicitly ties this new covenant language to the gospel. This new covenant, all the language in it, Who is the active participant? I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your eyes. I will give you a new heart. I will remove your heart of stone. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my command. Who is the one who does all of this? God. And here Jesus is talking to a man who is obsessed with making sure that he himself has dotted all of his I's, crossed all of his T's. He's got it together. He cares about what this looks like. So for everyone to see, I've got it together. And here Jesus is saying, now you gotta be born again. 
What does that mean? And he takes them back to this prophecy that God will wash you with water. God will place his spirit in you. He will save you. He will give you a new heart. Take away the heart of stone that feels nothing and give you a heart of flesh that can feel again. And now you, active participant too, you're just responding to what God has done. And then the empowerment to carry on in following after God now with a renewed heart in faith that he has given you. Now it is his power. He will cause you to not turn away. He will cause you to follow in his commands. From start to finish, it is God. He has done this. He's talking to someone who's obsessed with making sure that he pulls up him, his own pants, he buttons his own pants, he ties his own shoes, he stands tall because he is important. And Jesus says, no, no, no. That's not what you can do. It's what God can do and God alone can do. So think of the wind. Is this, is this confusing you, Nicodemus? You think you've got to try harder? You've got to be better? You've got to overcome this sin or you've got to pull this together in your life? You've got to have this resume? You've got to do whatever it is, whatever the thing is that's causing you shame and you think, I've just got to overcome this. And you hear Jesus saying, no, 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 Nicodemus, think about this. The wind outside, you know it's blowing. You believe it's real. You feel it. You see the effects of it. It doesn't amaze you anymore, does it? You don't sit and ponder, like, where did that come from? Where is it going? And yet, you don't think it should be amazing that God would do what he wants to do. That he would go where he wants to go. That he would save who he wants to save. Oh, stand amazed. Stand amazed at this. This is not a physical outward thing that man can accomplish or ever even attempt to control. Our salvation is in the hands of God. So look at verse 9 now. How can these things be? He's still confused. Asked Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied, truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. The we in that is thought to be Jesus kind of identifying with the prophets of old as he's just referenced a prophecy. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Nicodemus should be top of class, an expert, and yet he's perplexed. How can these things be, Jesus? Rabbi, teacher, like I know you're from God, you're with God, because no one else could do these signs. I've seen them, and I care a lot about what is seen. How could this be? And Jesus calls him on it teacher of Israel, how do you not understand? I mean, if you, if you can't grasp these earthly things, how could we even begin to talk about heavenly things? He calls him on this. His failure is clear. The assessment has come in. He opened the app and saw that he braked a little too hard. And like me, it's crushing that I failed to measure up. The standard of perfection that I have for myself, I didn't reach that, let alone God's holy standard. You know, the, the beginning of Romans, Paul spends about three chapters to make sure it's crystal clear to all of us that we all are broken and in desperate need of salvation. And my favorite argument that he makes is he makes a few arguments in there. He says, you don't even keep your own standards that you impose on others. You think that you stand up under God's standards? No. You need grace. The assessment has come. 
Your score has been tallied. The results are in. It's posted on the wall with your student ID number, except we all know it. It's all of us. When you show up and the prof, I don't know if they still do this, but back when I was in college, you know, they staple it outside the door. You know your student ID number and you see your score there. And you walk up there and you have the anonymity of they don't know my student numbers, they don't know my score, except all of you, it's so small, you're all like, oh, right there. Oh, 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 look at that. Oh, my gosh. You know what happens? You all walk up as a class and every student ID number has an F next to it. And now we all know. We all failed. We all failed. When I was a, a young teenager, <clears throat> I was part of a church that I love dearly still. And, and I throw no one under the bus in this. I think there were a lot of things done in naivety. Um, but there was a program that I was a part of that was like supposed to disciple children, just teach us doctrines, and they did that beautifully. Like I learned a lot about the Bible, and I'm deeply thankful for it. But some of it was also awful. Because as a young teenager, I entered into this program and it was actually a collection of churches across the nation that would participate in this. And you got a little booklet and it had memory verses, it had questions for comprehension where you had to read some scripture, you had to answer questions about doctrine, theology, all this stuff. And so um, you'd come back week after week and it was a contest that you would earn points for what you did. And so if I read the book, answered the questions correctly, I got points for that. If I could quote the memory verse back, even if I just read it two seconds ago and then just blurted it out and now it's gone, I got points. And if I told them that I mowed my neighbor's yard or I, I held the door open for my mom today or like little things like that, acts of surface equal points. And I'm just going to level with you. I'm a terrible student, but I'm really good at getting good grades because I can read it and keep it for just a little bit and then it's totally gone. And so reading comprehension is at least on par with what's usual I can answer the questions, and I'll do that in all of like three minutes on the way here. And so from the beginning, I was really good at that. Had no real lasting effect on me, except by God's grace that some of it's somehow deep inside there. But I was just putting on a show. I was really good at putting on the show. So good, in fact, that one of the leaders, as we got towards the end of the year, was like, hey, you seem really good at this. In fact, if you tried a little harder, I think that you could win the national contest. And so for the last couple of months, I was like, have at it, let's go. I'll do this. And next thing you know, uh, I get a letter, and I'm in the top three of the nation. They're going to announce the winners, present them out of state. We're going to go to Tennessee for this national conference. And so my family gets an all expenses paid, except they just gave you like a gas card, I think. And like, so we show up, they've got this cheap CD hotel for us. And we're, we're in this place. You go to the conference and it's just like old man after old man standing there giving reports about this stuff. And, and there was like a literally 60 second part in the middle of all this stuff where they're just talking about budgets and different things where they want to acknowledge the top three finishers in the nation for this program, these teenagers. And me and two other kids are called up. They give us these little award things. Oh, this is lovely. This is so good. And as they give us the awards, I realize, like, they didn't say who won. Like, what was, was the order the order they called us up here? There's nothing on the certificate that tells me if I'm, like, number one, number two, or number three. And so we have to ask afterward, like, which, because it matters to me. <laughs> which position did I finish in? Third place. Third place. I heard it. That's how I felt. Oh. 
Like, might as well not be here. Actually, it's worse that I'm here. It's worse that I'm here. I failed. I failed. And I told that story years later to a friend who chuckled and said, you were the third holiest kid in America. (laughs) I thought, yeah, yeah. Do you realize how absurd that is? How obnoxious. And we will not have a ministry like that with our kids. And I'm not casting stones. But here's the thing. I remember a conversation as a young teenager when I decided, oh, I'm going to rack up the points here. I'm going to pull it off here at the end. I remember having a conversation with a leader where it's like, go through every option. How can I get points? And they go through the checklist. Well, you know, this, this, did you do this? Did you do this? And I'm playing games, like gymnastics for sure. Like, well, yeah, I did this, and that counts as this, and all this stuff. And, and I remember telling them one week, well, I shared the gospel three times this week. And they're looking through the list and like, it's not on the list. You don't get points for that. And I remember like, what? I don't get points for sharing the gospel? And I remember the leader saying, well, no, that's just something you should just do as a Christian. What's the rest of the list? (laughs) But I remember processing that as a teenage boy, thinking, I get points for bringing people here as a visitor, but I don't get points for sharing the gospel with them at school. So all that matters here is what you can see. All that matters is where there is something that you can see, and so we can have the appearance of holiness. Ah. That's how this game is played. And you know, that kind of stuff has stuck with me, and that's why I still struggle. That's why I still open the app every time. Say, how did I do? Because my appearance matters so much. And here's Jesus saying, no, 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 Kevin. No. Unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how good you look. You could never be good enough. What matters is what has God done? Do you believe that? Is that what you're putting your trust in? Not some signs, but in the one who did the signs, Jesus, the one who has the power to save, the one who came and took our place. Is it just another type of Phariseeism? As Jesus is calling him out and then making the shift to make this clear claim of what his identity is, what is the role of God in salvation that is our rebirth? So keep reading. Look at verse 14 now. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send a Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. In the book of Numbers, chapter 21, we're told the story when God's people, the Israelites, have grown to this massive nation, millions of them, living in Egypt. Um, They were there at first to save them from famine as Joseph led them down. And then as they're drawn out because they've come under oppression, the new Pharaoh, 400 years later, has no clue who these people really are. But they're really nice slaves. As they're oppressing them, they don't like how much they're populating the country of Egypt now. And so oppress them, oppress them, oppress them. And Moses 
is called by God to lead them out. You have God with this judgment on Egypt that the culminates in the Passover when the firstborn of every household is killed unless the lamb's blood is posted up there and they still celebrate that in what's known as the Passover. They come through the Red Sea on dry land. Pharaoh's army is swallowed up. They've been miraculously delivered in what is called the Exodus. We have a book titled Exodus. It's this fleeing, this drawing out. And now they're in the wilderness and they're wandering around and they're so quick to forget that God just miraculously saved them and took them out of enslavement. And this is all of our story. The whole Exodus is really our story because we were enslaved to sin. Remember, our enslavement to sin. And God draws us out. But they come to this point where they're in the wilderness and they're grumbling, they're complaining. Why would you bring us out here just so we could die? And God sends a plague of snakes on them to correct them. And judgment, snakes come, poisonous snakes at that, fiery snakes. If you take it literally, like it burns and it kills. They're dying in mass. The people of God are in the wilderness. They stop their complaining when they realize there's snakes here and they're biting us and we're dying in large numbers. And Moses is praying to God and they're all repenting like, we're sorry. And what has to happen for this to turn around? And God tells Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole and hold it up. And anyone who gets bit by a snake, tell them to look right at that snake and they'll be spared. As you imagine Moses crafting this bronze serpent, he holds it up on a stick, all these people just literally dying, they're burning up with fevers or whatever it is, these fiery snakes, they're poisonous snakes, they're killing them and they come crawling up, legs swelling, everything else, like turning colors and they see this snake on a pole, the thing that was killing them and they have to look at it and suddenly they feel the effect of that poison subsiding. And as they gaze at the thing that killed them or was killing them, they find life. And Jesus pulls him back, this expert in the Old Testament, this Pharisee, says, you remember this? Just like that bronze serpent was raised up, so will the Son of Man be raised up. And in the same way, you must look to that. You must look to the Son of Man raised up and you'll find life. And when do you see the Son of Man raised up? On a cross. As he is murdered on a cross. The innocent Son of God, God in flesh, is nailed to a cross. And on the cross, he took our sin on himself. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. And so Jesus took our place, being nailed to a cross. He became our sin so the wrath of God would be poured out on him. He would face our punishment, our shame, our fact that when we open the app, it says, you failed, Kevin, you failed, you failed, you failed. Every one of you, you have failed. And yet here is Jesus taking our failure on himself, becoming our failure, nailed to a cross, lifted up like that serpent, so that now we could look at our failure and that would be our salvation. And he became our failure. This is our salvation. This is how you get to the famous John three sixteen. This is how God loved us. He sent his only son. So whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But it means you look at him, the one who took our sin and our shame, and he took our place on a cross the thing that was killing us, our sin, our failure, we look to it because it was placed on him. He is our salvation. This is where you find rebirth. This is where you find new life. This is where you find entrance into the kingdom of God. This is how you see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is Jesus, the king of the kingdom, dying in your place on a cross. 
So be honest about your sin. Confess that he is our salvation. He is Savior. He is Lord. Turn from your sin. Turn to him. Trust him. Believe that he died, but then he rose again. He rose again victorious over sin and death so that we could have everlasting life with him, to be with him. He wants you. He wants you to be with him. Jesus is preaching the gospel in this moment. His crucifixion death would be our life because we failed the test. So you need grace. And grace starts with admitting your defeat, admitting your failure, and running to the one who became our sin so that we could have his righteousness. And then he put our sin to death. It's gone. The record of death that stood against us is gone. It's erased. It was nailed to a cross. And he's put the enemy to open shame. And we live in freedom and joy. We live with God himself. The bottom line, gospel is the good news that we are saved by God. By God. We're saved by God. How do we respond to this? Look at verse 19 as we close this out. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. By God. You either hate the light and stay in darkness or you embrace truth and come into the light. A conversation with Tim, who we will be affirming as an elder of Beloved Church next week. And he pointed out, um, you know, often in denominations or different churches, we, we take on a culture, and, and in preaching the gospel, we'll tend to emphasize um, one or two or three things more than all three equally. And these three things are that we are to repent, turn from our sin, we are to believe, and then we are to obey. It's all three. And you see all three beautifully in this text as Jesus calls Nicodemus to real life in him. What is ultimately exposed for those who live in the light? At the end, that their works will be shown to be accomplished by God. Accomplished by God. So repentance. We must respond to the gospel with repentance. We must turn from our sin. But remember, our hearts are stone. They don't feel that. Our hearts were stone. You knock on a stone door, it hurts your knuckles. Nobody inside heard that. But a heart of flesh, you feel that. You will not feel that. You will not repent. You will not be sorry for your sin and turn away from your sin until you have this new heart. And this repentance is a new heart that comes from the Spirit, moving as he will, as Jesus said, like the wind. So who accomplishes Repentance. God's the one who did that, and we just respond in repentance. It was his movement. And belief, that we put our faith in him, now that we have a new heart that feels, we see the beauty of who he is, and we freely choose him, because we're no longer slaves to sin. But now we're slaves to righteousness. We see him, we believe, and yet this faith, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, is a gift from God. You don't conjure up your own faith. Faith is actually a gift from God. It comes from the Spirit moving as he will. And then obedience, that we respond in a life of obedience. And sanctification, as we struggle onward, we walk in light. Sometimes we stumble in the dark, but we walk in light. And this obedience, the power to obey, is a strength that comes from the Spirit moving as He will. Every time, every part of this is accomplished 
by God. <laughs> by God. You've heard that expression? It's an English expression. You see something that's astounding. It surprises you. By God. <laughs> you wonder, where did that come from? Why do people start saying that? By God. Because when we see the way that God works, the way that God moves, it is surprising. It startles us. How beautiful that Jesus preaches the gospel to Nicodemus, who cares so much about appearance. No, no, no. Every bit of it, by God. You think you can do this? You can't do it. No chance on your own. But by God, you'll come into the kingdom of heaven. So I'd invite you into the kingdom of heaven. Will you repent? Will you turn from your sin? We failed the test. But will you put your faith in the one who became our failure? and died on a cross in our place, overcoming and then being raised back to life, would you believe that he died and he rose again? And would you walk in obedience forevermore because he is the Lord? Confess his lordship. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The promise of scripture is you will be saved without exception. So, skeptic, seeker, stumbling or doubting saint, when it's hard to believe and you hear this good news, when asked pointedly, in the words of Jesus, anyone with ears, let him hear. Can you hear? Right now, can you hear the Spirit saying, this is true? Put away your doubting and believe. Turn from your sin and walk in obedience because he is your salvation. You look to him, the one who is lifted up on a cross. And follower of Jesus, who do you need to share this good news with? And be faithful in that. Pray with me. Father in heaven, you are so wonderful. And Jesus, who has come among us and has ascended back to the Father's side, you too are glorious. Thank you for your teaching. Thank you that your servant would record this conversation that you had with a man a couple thousand years ago who's obsessed with the way that he looked because we can so relate to that. Thank you that you did not come to condemn the world, but to come offering forgiveness in life because we were already under condemnation. So I pray, Spirit, that you who are active here today, that you would work in our hearts. Sanctify us, grow us, conform us to the image of the Son. But I pray especially that you would give the gift of faith that as we lift up Jesus and we see that he was lifted up on a cross in real history, he really did die for us to be our salvation. I pray, Spirit, that you would open eyes to see, that you would give new hearts, take away hearts of stone and give hearts of flesh. And then would you empower us as those who know you to go live faithfully in sharing that gospel so that you would continue to do that around this world. But start here in this room, in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, to the ends of the earth for your glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.